please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Kimberly Prather. Thank you for uh, the introduction and uh, thank you for um, coming tonight to hear a little bit about um, the work that I've been doing um, with a pretty strong focus on the research we're doing right now, which has evolved over time. But um, what I'll start is sort of giving you a background on the motivation uh, for the research that, that we're doing at UC San Diego. And um, as you'll learn, I, I direct a major National Science Foundation uh, center that uh, we established about eight years ago. Uh, and so what I kind of want to lead you through is the motivation to get to the point of, of why we're doing the things that we're doing. So I think, you know, from the standpoint of uh, thinking about our changing climate, our changing planet, I don't have to spend too much time on this. This is sort of, to me, one of the more uh, compelling figures that we have. Uh, you know, six, 17 of the last 18 years have been the hottest on record since we started making temperature uh, measurements in the late 1800s. And so basically, 2018 was the fourth hottest. Uh, so there, you know, it, it jumps around. 1998 is the only one that wasn't in this century. But the bottom line is, is that we've experienced the hottest temperatures uh, recently more than at any other time. And the temperatures are going up at an increase, you know, at an alarming rate. I would say, you know, people will tell you, well, it's been this warm before. And all that is true, but it's never happened this fast. And so, you know, we're concerned about this, uh, what it's doing to our planet. And I think, you know, uh, I don't think I have to sort of say much more than that, other than to say that Mother Earth is also trying to tell us that she's not feeling so well right now. Very much like humans, when we have a temperature, certain parts of our body start to tell us they're not feeling so well. We're never quite sure which ones are going to tell us first. And the same is true for the Earth. And there is, you can just look around. And we used to say we have to take care of this planet for our kids and our grandkids, but we're seeing it now at an incredible rate, at a rate much faster, quite honestly, than any of us predicted. And so we're seeing evidence of some regions have more flooding, some regions have more droughts. We're seeing multiple, multiple hurricanes over oceans where they've never been before. We're seeing wildfires, which are starting to control the air quality in California. It's like if we're not getting flooding and drought, at the other time of year, we're getting wildfires. And so we're, you know, there's evidence no matter where you go. It depends on where you live, what the indicators are. But in general, Mother Nature is screaming for help. And we need to be listening. And so you know, I often get asked, oh, was that hurricane due to uh, climate change? And we have to be really careful when we say that. Uh, we, we basically never, never will attribute one year or one day or one minute or one, ep one event. You can never attribute that to climate change. Climate change, what we look for are trends. And so if we do that, then we can basically start to look at billion-dollar disasters. And what we see is when you lump them together, the number of billion-dollar disasters is increasing year by year. That's a trend that's changing and has many of us concerned. If we calculate the cost of this, it's huge. And you know, one of the battles right now is getting people to listen because it may seem like a lot of money to invest in trying to make, put us back on a better track. 
but the cost is just going to continue to rise. And so the longer we wait, the more expensive it's going to be. Yeah, I guess you could say it's someone else's problem. But it, at that point, you know, there's no sort of hitting rewind. That is our concern. Once, we, once I think everybody sort of says, yeah, there's a problem, let's fix it, what are we going to do? And I'll talk more about that um, through my talk. So why is our climate changing so fast? It's not rocket science. It's very straightforward. I will also add that I often get asked when people hear that I study climate, climate change, people will ask me if I believe in global warming. Note that I don't use the words global warming, I use the words climate change because some places are getting cooler. The other thing when people ask me, do I believe, my common response is, do I believe or do I understand? This is not a belief system. This is not a religion. These are cold, hard, pretty simple scientific facts. The biggest one is that our planet is just bursting at the seams with people, which has taken off at a huge rate. We're now at 7.7 .7 billion people. And this is discontinuing to rise. And so what do these people need to live? We need energy, we need food, and these are all sources of air pollution. And so one of the questions, I give a lot of public lectures, one of the questions I ask people, and I, I give public lectures to kindergartners, I talk to everyone about this. Um, and I ask kindergartners, you know, when we burn this stuff and it goes in the air, does it escape? Does it just go off into outer space? And kindergartners will tell me no, no. It stays with us, like they get it. But somehow I ask my you know, college students the same question and they're like, it's gone, isn't it? Isn't it gone? And so one of the things that I teach everywhere I go, I mean, I talk to people in the grocery store, people see me coming, they're like, oh, here she comes again. <laughs> and as I will finish my talk with, it's one of the most important things we can do. The reason I take my time to be here tonight is to, and to give as many public lectures as I give, as I believe the public deserves to understand this problem. And there's so much confusion about it right now. And we won't go into the reasons why I think there's so much confusion, but I don't think there needs to be confusion. And so it's simple. The, the air is trapped with us. And you know there's different layers of the atmosphere. This is a picture taken from the International Space Station. And you can see it's not, this isn't a cartoon. This is real. The cartoon in the right-hand corner is true. But in the lower part, that's our Earth. And there's literally a layer, and that's what we call the troposphere. Here at Irvine, there's a lot of work done on the stratosphere, which is higher, which is where our ozone layer is that protects us. That's the good ozone. The ozone down near the ground that we have to breathe is the bad ozone. Sometimes people get confused by those. But the bottom line is the work that I'm going to talk about today and the work that we've been focusing on is the troposphere. And this is the lower level. This is where all the weather occurs. This is where all the air we breathe stays. And this is where the pollutants build up over time. Another thing I like to sort of clarify, because there's a great deal, as it turns out, of confusion in the public, is which pollutants are you talking about? And how long do they stick around? There is a belief that, you know, you look out and you can see pollution and it lasts, you know, a few days. So a lot of people believe that we will just, just turn it off. You know, the day that we decide there's problems, we're just going to stop emitting CO2. And it's all going to get better overnight, as soon as that CO2 can get out of the atmosphere. The problem is air pollution, which is highly reactive, does only stick around for, you know, sort of hours to days, to weeks sometimes. And that is true. But something like carbon dioxide or nitrous oxide or chlorofluorocarbons, once they're emitted into the atmosphere, 
that train has left the station. Those are there, and they will stick around for thousands of years. They partition between the ocean and the atmosphere and the forests, but they're there. And the US is responsible for over half of what is there. There are other countries now that are developing and are starting to put out large amounts. The US still puts out more per person than anywhere else. But the bottom line is, is that we, once it's in the atmosphere, which is where we stand right now, it's not clear how, without major advances in technology, which I'm still keeping my fingers crossed, and probably are too, there needs to be some major developments for what we're going to do about the stuff that is already out there. Because we are just starting to feel the effects. What people don't know is the effects that we're feeling today were from CO2 that was put out 100 years ago. The stuff we're putting out right now will be felt in 100 years. And so, you know, what do we do? This isn't intended, and I don't ever give a gloom and doom. I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't think that there was still hope. But I believe a lot of the hope has to depend on people like you and on the public speaking up and saying, you know, enough is enough. We need to do something. And so I just want to mention a little bit that I just sort of basic terminology that I will be focusing a lot on this thin little layer that's held near the ground. There's a temperature. So basically for people who care, there's a temperature inversion. It starts to get colder. Warm air can't go. It just butts up against there. And so things don't rise up above the troposphere. I mean, they will if they stick around long enough. That's what happened with the chlorofluorocarbons. That's a side note. Most of what I'm going to talk about in terms of air pollution and aerosols, which is the research that I do, we're talking about the troposphere. Okay. Speaking of aerosols. So what are aerosols? The, you know, most people think about the stuff that comes out of a spray can. That's aerosols. You know, and that was the CFC issue. And so sometimes I think people get um, a little bit confused and um, think that they're kind of one and the same. They're not. Aerosols are the ones that I study, the atmospheric aerosols. There's examples on the right-hand side. The two most common types in the atmosphere are dust from like deserts, from windstorms, and sea spray from the ocean when waves crash. And you can see them. The neat thing about aerosols is you visually see them. Wildfires, you see the smoke. Stuff coming out of a tailpipe, you see it. Those are aerosols. Little bits, suspended bits of dust and soot and ash. Those are what we call aerosols. And they span all the way from sort of the nanometer, really tiny, sort of microscopic nanoscale, all the way up. We talked about them up, we care about them up to about 10 microns. These are the particles that actually, once they're emitted into the atmosphere, can stay there for up to a couple of weeks. The interesting thing about aerosols, as this shows, is that they are transported. They connect us. The air is connected. We are all connected. This is a global problem. So aerosols that are emitted on one side of the planet can go all the way around the Earth in about two weeks. And what you see is they're emitted, and they go up into the jet stream, just like where we fly, and they go around, and they come down, and they can seed storms. They can seed hurricanes. Basically, aerosols play a major role in determining, as I'll talk more about, where our water falls. And so if we have more flooding in some regions and no water in others, that has actually, part of my research has been, showing that that has a lot to do with the aerosols that seeded those storms. And so you can see them being incorporated into the storms as they're going around. And so one of the things we have to start thinking about is that the pollution that we're emitting is not just affecting us. It's affecting other countries. And other countries are affecting us. And so this is a global problem. And one of the things that I'll talk about today quite a bit are microbes. And microbes, I have become, I am a chemist. But I have become, I am becoming a microbiologist because I believe those microbes are basically trying their best to maintain the health of our planet. 
just like they go in your gut. You hear about your microbiome in your gut controls the health of your body. They're also trying to control the health of our planet. And so they're also releasing lots of, one of the things that we do in my research, and I'll talk a little bit more about, we read, we, re, we actually measure what the microbes are emitting from the ocean, from soil. I call them little chemical smoke signals. They're trying to tell us something, right? These microbes have adapted over 3.6 billion years. And so they're, they're talking and they adapt fast and they are really sensitive the most sensitive and the fastest to adapt to the environmental stressors that we're experiencing right now. So I care and you'll hear a lot more about microbes throughout my talk. And we, this is a really, really important area that is starting to really take off. And so one thing we're noting is that over time, we're, we're noticing that there's either flooding, you see this in the paper all the time, there's flooding in some areas, too much water, so there's huge landslides, or there's not enough water. But you're starting to see these extreme events. There's too much or too little. There's no, you know, sort of in the middle like there used to be. And I study aerosols. I fly through clouds, as I'll talk about now. And I'm, I really, I'm, really believe that a lot of this has to do with the, what's seeding those clouds determines where that water is coming down. And that is changing. Those circulation patterns that I showed in that slide, they're moving all over the place. And so the seeds that make the clouds are changing. And so this is leading to a redistribution of our water resources. And so thinking about aerosols, basically you would not have clouds on this planet if you didn't have aerosols. At the center of every cloud drop is, a, is an aerosol particle. At the center of every ice crystal is an aerosol particle. Ice actually turns out to be the really magical ingredient for precipitation, as I'll talk about in a minute. There's been a major focus on what, which seeds make the most rain, or no rain, or stop rain. And so you may think, you know, so basically the research I do, I developed early in my career uh, a technique that allows us to look at the composition of each source one by one, and made, we can fly through clouds, as I'll show, and measure the chemistry and the sources of those particles and see whether some clouds rain, some clouds snow, some clouds just sit there. Does it have anything to do with the aerosols? And so the common things that we were looking at are things like from the ocean, things from pollution, things like wildfire smoke. What happens when those go into clouds and do we see an effect of different seeds having a different effect on the outcome? So the cartoon when I got brought in, when my research group got brought into this problem, I was approached by the California Energy Commission and they said, our snowpack is going down in the Sierras. We think it's us. We think it's California. We think that we're putting too much pollution into the clouds. We're putting too many seeds into the clouds. And we're turning off our own rain. That's what we think. And so that's shown here, where these are the bottom pictures are satellite images. The color codes are the size of the drops. And so from space, we can look at clouds and tell how many drops, how big they are. And basically, these images show that in polluted air you have many small drops and in cleaner air you have a lower number of large drops because you have the same amount of water. So if you give it a bunch of seeds, you get a bunch of little particles that grow to drops, but they can't grow big enough to fall. So the idea being that if you put too many seeds in a cloud, you can actually, places where people live, we can start to turn off precipitation. So they brought us in and said, okay, you developed an instrument that you're using on the ground and you can measure what the sources of these particles are what about if we fl you fly this instrument through the clouds? I had never flown through clouds in my life. And they said, you know, this was California Energy Commission. They cared about hydroelectric power. 20% of our power comes from that. And so they said, you know, let's just fly through the clouds and see if there's a connection between what the clouds look like and what is happening. 
And so here I am, $3 million, I'll do anything, almost. And um, especially if it's to save the planet, it has to be both, right? So basically, we flew on the DOE uh, G1, and we asked this basic question that nobody had ever asked before, which is, how are the aerosols that seed the clouds affecting precipitation in California? This is a project called CalWater 2011. There was also a follow-up called CalWater 2015. There I am on the plane with my headset, looking at the data as it comes in, telling the pilots where to fly. Those are the inlets, the top right-hand corner. There's inlets that show um, that basically some sample just the, the cloud drops and ice crystals, and we can measure the chemistry using our instruments of those sort, you know, basically the sources of those cloud seeds. We can also sample the aerosols that are available to seed the clouds and see if the same ones are all, you know, it doesn't matter, right? And so the bottom are these probes that people have had on planes for decades that give you the microscopic view of the inside of the cloud. They tell you, is there water, is there ice, how many particles are, how many cloud drops are there, how much ice is there. They're, they are really good at giving you what we call the microphysics of the inside of that cloud. But nobody had ever connected it with the chemistry, which is what we were able to do. So remember, we went into this thinking, how are we in California affecting our precipitation? The idea being, it's called orographic forcing, but basically the air lifts up into the clouds, the aerosols seed the clouds, and that makes the rain. So, you know, it's got to be coming from us, right? Wrong. What we learned was that on days where we had a tremendous amount of snowfall at the ground, the air was coming all the way from Africa. And that dust and microbes from as far away from Africa, which is over 10,000 miles away across the Pacific. So first of all, people didn't believe the air came that far, but it does. And so what happens is it goes into the, we flew through these clouds and we would see that on days where there was this dust and this microbe signature, we would get tremendous snowfall at the ground. And this is the first time it was ever shown that the aerosols, in fact, do affect precipitation. I mean, I'm telling you, when we started this, working with no meteorologists, they thought I was crazy. I mean, I had to kind of like use really careful language, like, let's just see if and what they are, right? But they didn't, they didn't believe until this. When they saw this, they, they completely was a game changer. You could actually finally explain why some days there was these ice layers inside of clouds, which people have been looking at since the 60s. We in California, a lot of people don't realize, but we've been seeding our own clouds in California to make more rain since the 40s. So, you know, because of hydroelectric power. And so, you know, here we've now looked and realized this is how Mother Nature does it. She does it in a way that can give you, when you get days like this, we see 60% more snowfall at the ground. And so Mother Nature, that you do not see that when humans seed clouds, I'll tell you. There's a big debate about whether human cloud seeding does anything. And so why, why are the microbes in the dust so special? It has to do with the fact they make ice very well at relatively warm temperatures. On days when they're not there, you can get super cooled liquid to temperatures, really cold temperatures, negative 38 degrees C. They just sit there, do nothing. But you give a little bit of ice, you basically grow ice, it falls and it scavenges huge amounts of water and snow from those clouds. And so this was a big discovery at the time and after people didn't believe us, when we finally got them to believe us. And it was written up in Discover. There was a lot of work about, you know, these are microbes that are living 25 miles, at least 25 miles, up in, up in the sky, in the clouds. They're, they're living, they're thriving. You know, what is going, how are, you know, what is sort of, do they have a method to the madness? How are they getting, is this the way that they get hop around from continent to continent and get around our planet? 
And so the question then became, okay, we can see they're alive. We can see they're making a difference to where our water falls. They are playing a major role in controlling the health of our planet. Where did they come from? So it turns out, in the world of microbiology, many more studies, many, many more studies, have been done looking at the microbes that come from soil, from desert dust. It's easy. Go collect soil, grow microbes, and look at what they are. And so the question was, are they coming from the dust, or are they coming from the ocean? Remember, this air is coming all the way across the ocean. We know almost nothing about the microbes that get out of the ocean. And the ocean covers nearly three-quarters of our planet. So this was a huge motivation for the center that we developed. Believe it or not, nobody had ever made sea spray that looks just like the real thing in the lab. Nobody could isolate just the ocean. And so we proposed to NSF that we were going to, that we've been out over the ocean. You might say, well, why don't you just go look over the ocean? Problem is, you saw that movie, right? Everything's mixed up. Humans are everywhere. You can't get away from humans. You can't get away from land. And so how do you look at just the ocean? So we said to NSF, we're going to isolate the whole ocean atmosphere biology system in the lab. And they, they believed us. And it, <laughs> it was a bold statement at the time. And it took a couple of years. And people from many areas, it's a chemistry center. It's called the Center for Chemical Innovation. They're, one, they're the largest center that NSF gives out. There's six of these in the country. It's mostly chemistry, but with a smattering of microbiology, marine chemistry, marine bi micro, uh, basically oceanography. This was the beauty of the center, is that if we were just a bunch of chemists or isolated scientists, as we sometimes tend to be, we never would have solved this, and we would never have been able to do what we were able to do. It was this magical combination of people from all different areas that made it possible. So what does it take to, to look at just the ocean? First of all, people thought, and the way climate models treat the ocean, is it's all salt, right? You breathe that, you guys are not going to appreciate this, but you breathe that air on a Sunday morning walk on the beach. You're just breathing salt, right? Hmm, uh-oh. Anyway, you'll think of me next Sunday. So basically, the o they don't call it the living ocean for nothing. It gives us 50 to 85% of the oxygen we breathe. There's a lot of life in that ocean. And so, you know, there's viruses, bacteria, phytoplankton, proteins, all signs of life. And these signs of life, they don't really like water. And so what do they do? A lot of them just reside in this thin skin called the sea surface microlayer that sits on top of the ocean. And so what happens along the coastline when the waves crash? Bubbles, which have become my favorite, that was the trick to get the real sea spray. You have to get the right bubbles the right sizes, those bubbles go in and they grab all of this stuff that doesn't really want to be in the water, all the biology, and they launch it in really high concentrations into the atmosphere. And so they enrich the biology in the air. And believe it or not, nobody had been able to look at that in an isolated manner before. And so basically, how does this affect our climate? Well, these, as I mentioned, these particles, aerosol, sea spray aerosol, SSA, you'll see me call it, they go up and they can, they, they can directly interact. So they're floating around. They're like little mirrors. And they scatter light really well. So sunlight that's coming in hits these surfaces and bounces back up into space. And so that blocks light that would normally get down and hit the Earth and be re-emitted and trapped by the greenhouse gases. It actually keeps the planet cooler. The other thing which we focus a lot on in case is looking at their ability to seed clouds. And the big question we ask is, as the ocean biology changes, 
does that affect the clouds? And this was a hugely controversial topic when we started. Half of, literally, half of the scientific community would sail to a point, and they'd say, okay, here's a phytoplankton bloom. This is where all the action is. Are the clouds, do the clouds look different? You, again, you can look from space, you can do all kinds of measurements. Half, the, half would say yes, and half would say no. And there was just this huge battle that's been going on for, I don't know, 30, 30 years, more than 30 years, actually. And so, getting at the microbes, I mentioned that they like to control temperatures. Down in the right-hand box is how we sort of, it's the Gaia theory. You've heard, I don't know how many of you have heard of the Gaia theory, but this is this concept that based on what gets out of the ocean, if you think of those as cloud seeds, they can actually control the brightness of the clouds, which affects how much light makes it to the earth. So if things get too warm, they can change the brightness of the clouds and cool it off, and vice versa. So this is the planetary thermostat. It's the way the Earth needs to keep its temperatures in a narrow range just like your body. And so this is one way the microbes, we think, are actually doing it. So how do we study something like this? Well, we have to think about the biology. So we work with microbiologists. We launch phytoplankton blooms. We, we Basically, that creates more bacteria, changes the viruses, and we can create this whole cycling. What people had done in the past was they just took a bunch of chemicals that come out of phytoplankton, dumped them into salt water and tried to study that. That does not give you, there's up to 10, there's 10 to the 15 different organic molecules in the ocean, different types. You know, how do, we can't go like buy it, look in a catalog and reproduce that anyway. So these are our organic synthesizers. Then we worked with the oceanographers who said, you chemists have been doing it all wrong. You stick a frit like you put in an aquarium with bubbles and you bubble all this stuff out into the atmosphere. That is so wrong. You're scavenging, the, you're transferring the wrong stuff. You need the right bubble size distribution, which is actually mathematically described. You got a copy of Breaking Wave and they worked with us for two years to teach us how to do that. Once we have the sea spray, we, we're the first people to make sea spray that looks just like the stuff over the open ocean. What had happened in the past was people were making, the, were making the wrong stuff and then trying to explain the real world field studies, lab studies, there's this huge disconnect and there was no agreement. And so we actually made the stuff just like the stuff in the real world. And then we can start to look at reactions and then we can start to look at their ability to form clouds. And so this is case, is this concept of making it correctly, you know, through the biology, through the production mechanisms, and then looking at the chemistry and looking at the impacts on the clouds and the climate. And so the other thing we've been learning more and more, and this is a hot off, you'll start to see this probably hitting the papers, we're also seeing a lot of these gases coming out from the biology, and we think these are having even more profound effects, and I won't go there too much, but I will just mention that, because that's kind of one of the hotter things we're working on, and people are interested, we can talk about it afterwards. So what did we do? Where did we do it? Well, we went and we did it first with the, with the wave channel, where we break waves, you can see on the left, we can do biology. It's a 33 meter long flume wave channel. It's not crooked, I'll show you a real picture in a second. But basically these are all the instruments and we made real breaking waves. And we have little faucets that scripts so that we can turn on the water and fill the tank and turn it off and spike it with nutrients and grow a bloom and do the whole shebang in this, um, in this channel. Uh, and so we were able to create, after a long time, we were able to put a lid on this channel, which had never been used for this before, and we were able to study the isolated air of what gets out of the ocean. 
it seemed like, like it was kind of shocking to be able to say we did this for the first time. And we saw that sea spray is incredibly complex and it changes a lot over the course of a phytoplankton bloom. And so this is a real picture during a major study that we were doing that I'll talk about. You can see it is indeed straight. We've added lights. You need that for phytoplankton blooms. We're getting ready to do a huge study this summer. And if anybody's interested, we'll be running all summer so people can come see it. But usually this is empty space, but we fill it up with instruments, people from all over the world. When we had the ocean, this is three quarters of the earth that we don't know what's getting out. And so people came from everywhere. And there will be even more this summer. And so this is a picture of um, this wonderful facility that we've developed uh, at Scripps. And so we got the production right. We made the oceanographers happy. What about the biology? So this is a picture of chlorophyll from space, which is the proxy people use to sort of see where things are blooming. And you can see that in blooming regions, there's different, you know, different colors, but there's a tremendous amount of diversity depending on where you are. And so the question is, how does that translate? Does it translate? Does, does what's happening in the, is there a connection between the chemistry and the biology of what's in the ocean and what's in the air? Nobody knew. There, this was incredibly, incredibly controversial. And so we basically, you know, is, it, is there a thermostat? Are these microbes really able to change cloud properties or not? And so what we did was we thought about how it happens in the real world. And what happens in the real world is that dust, things like dust, pollution, but a lot of dust, dust is really good at supplying nutrients. It dumps into the, deposits in the ocean. And then that launches the phytoplankton bloom. And so we did the same thing. And then we thought about the chemistry. What happens? It's not necessarily just the phytoplankton. Microbiologists said, those people, phytoplankton is just food. They're not very smart. The microbes are doing everything. And I didn't really know. You know, they talk like microbes. They have stories the microbes tell. You know, the microbes are smart, right? We need to listen to the microbes. I'm like, this man's crazy. But anyway, I hope he doesn't watch this video. But he didn't turn out, he would turn out to be right. So basically, you launch the phytoplankton. They are the food. Then the bacteria, the blue line, they take off. And then the viruses, like the bacteria, and they take off. And you create what's called this microbial loop, which was discovered by my microbiology colleague, Farouk Azam who made this work. We would have done it. We were doing it. Everyone was doing it wrong. And so you build up the chemical complexity to look just like the real world. And then the question is, do things behave like you would expect or not? And what do you see in this sort of isolated system? So the next question, which is just amazing to me that nobody had answered this, this was 2014, is as the biology, which is shown on the left, and also on the right, those are fluorescent images just showing that as the bio, after you add the nutrients, you can see there's more fluorescent stuff, which is the biology. It starts to get really complex in the water. But the question nobody had ever answered is, what gets out and when? Does it ever get out? And so this was the point of, of impacts, the study that we did. And we were able to finally sort of come to grips with what's going on and how the biology it took us a while. But basically, the top left, I'm trying to sort of, sort of not show too much data, but this is really cool. We had to do, we had to get a phytoplankton. This was the world's largest phytoplankton bloom indoors. And we got not one, but two. So you can see the green shading is chlorophyll A, which is the proxy for the phytoplankton. And there's two bumps. And those are two separate distinct blooms. The biologists then now believed us. So now we got the, ocean, you know, sort of the oceanographers believing our production. Now we got the bio microbiologists happy. 
because the only way you'd get two blooms is if the microbes were happy. And so we, we were able to do that indoors. So the question is, did we see a change in the chemistry of the spray? And did the property, would, the, would we expect, we also did measurements of what the clouds would do if those were your seeds. Would we expect the clouds to change? And so the world was watching, you know, is it a yes or is it a no? Does the chemistry change during a bloom? Or when does it change? And guess what? We got both answers. So we saw that during the first bloom, we saw this oily type get out, which would have a huge effect on the cloud properties. And during the second bloom, we saw a salty type get out. Completely different chemistry in a self-contained system, completely different. So now we made both camps happy, right? Because we got everybody's answer. But the trick was now we had to explain why. What is going on? And so we were able to show basically that it isn't just the phytoplankton. The phytoplankton create, as shown in this little simple diagram, the phytoplankton create ex, what they call exudates, these big nasty sort of molecules that float around. And then they they're like, they're look like fats. They're literally fats, triacylglycerides. They float to the surface. And then the enzymes associated with the microbes come along and chew those up really fast. And so what's the difference between the two blooms? During the first bloom, it's shown in the heterotrophic bacteria are black. You can see it's flat. And the second bloom, the bacteria take off, which means the enzymes are taking off. And so it's a competition. It makes sense, right? It's the phytoplankton. How fast can the phytoplankton produce things versus how fast can the microbes destroy those? And so that's the answer. That's the connection. That's why you get different answers. You've got to pay attention to the microbes because they are regulating things. And so this was a big deal. It made the cover of ACS Central Science. Basically, pay attention to the microbes. Our microbiology colleagues were absolutely right. So how does this control the temperature of the planet? And so this is just a simple schematic. On the left is sort of what got out in the first bloom, the triacylglycerides, the insoluble, fatty, floaty stuff, the oily stuff. And enzymes come along, and they chew it up. And when they chew it up, they convert it to a form that's very wa highly water-soluble. So now only salts get out. And so it's this competition. So how does that change the, the properties of the clouds? Basically, in things that are oily, they don't really like water. They don't make very good cloud seeds. And so you get sort of less seeds. So you get bigger seeds. And those are your darker clouds. When you see a gray cloud, that is a cloud that has much larger drops. It's usually going to rain. But that also is not as efficient as at scattering light back to space. Light can sneak through those clouds. And so basically, this would be warmer. And on the right, where you have a really bright white cloud, many, many tiny drops, you can see that those are very effective at scattering light. So that would lead to a cooler planet. So by controlling the chemistry of the seeds, this is one way that the ocean can regulate the temperature of the planet through chemistry, through biology. The other simple question we ask is, do we see evidence of different microbes getting out? Are the microbes that are in the seawater, is it just all coming out? Everything's coming out? And so we sampled the seawater, the sea surface microlayer, that thin skin, and then the aerosol. And what you see is there is a huge amount of selectivity. I'm not going to go into it here, but the bottom line is there is a lot of selectivity that's going on. Not everything gets out. Very specific microbes get out. Then the question is why. And so we see a huge amount of selectivity. And now the question becomes we start switching over from the health of our planet to the health of us. And so, the, you know, basically, what are the health of You're going to be back to thinking of me on the beach on Sunday or Saturday. And, um, you know, what are the health effects of breathing this stuff? Now you're breathing this cocktail of metabolites and viruses and bacteria. You know, is that good or bad for you? Believe it or not, nobody knows. 
We often think of the toxins that are in these toxic red tides, and I'll talk a little bit more of that. Are those getting out? What's getting out? What's in the air that we breathe? It is a lot more than just salts, and what are the health effects? So this is a direction that we're going, which leads me into sort of the final part, which is to think about living in a coastal region. And so this is in San Diego. There is a, uh, the Tijuana estuary dumps into the ocean, literally, millions, millions of gallons of sewage. Right now, it's happening. It happens all the time. And so this is a cross-border phenomenon. They don't treat their sewage the same as ours, and it can overflow and doesn't work as well, and it goes straight into our ocean. And so we started doing studies with the oceanographers because everybody was like, what happens when there's a sewage runoff? What happens when there's a huge pollution event? People don't surf. People don't swim. They tell you not to surf. They tell you not to swim. But do they tell you not to breathe? And so, you know, we came along and we said, you know, what is, you know, what's getting into the air? Because as I showed you, that air can go thousands of miles. It's going to expose everyone in San Diego, not just the people at the beach. And so the oceanographers were doing a study, which I'll talk about in a second. But the question starts, we start thinking about this. As our climate is changing, there is going to be less rain, and it's going to be more intense. What does that mean? It means that pollutants are going to build up on the shore, and, when those, and there's going to be more flooding because we have sea level rise. So all this stuff is going to get washed, more stuff, more pollutants, more toxins, more pathogens. They're all going to end up in the ocean. And then where are they going to go? And so we decided to look at this with the oceanographers, where basically you can see the pink dye. They put it into the estuary, and they let it get out into the ocean. Their goal before we came along was to look at how far up and down the coastline in this study called Seaside, how far up and down the coastline does this pollution go? How many surfers and swimmers are being affected? And we came along and said, well, what about the air? And so we sampled the air looking for this characteristic dye signature. It's a very characteristic dye signature. We put these samplers all over San Diego County way far inland, and asked if we actually see evidence that these microbes are getting out. And so the answer is yes. We saw the microbes everywhere. It actually depends, as you might guess, on the concentrations in the seawater and the concentrations um, and also the ocean patterns. So this is the beauty of working with the oceanographers. They can look where the currents were coming from. They can look at how big the surf was. We're trying to work our way to get to the point where we can know the concentrations of the pollutants, toxins, things in the ocean, and know what's in the air that you're breathing. That's sort of our goal. This is the study that we're doing right now. It's down in Imperial Beach, which is right above the border. And everybody is watching in Imperial Beach. We're sampling now. We finally have access to this estuary. I mean, you go there, and it smells like a porta potty going into the ocean. And so, you know, it's, 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 it is really not good stuff that's going into the ocean. And so we're now doing uh, DNA and RNA analysis. We're looking for pathogens. You know, again, it's something that's amazing to me. Things like cholera, water, what we've always called waterborne pathogens. They're the right size that if they're in the water, and we know they are in coastal zones, they're going to get in the air. But for some reason, no one has looked. And so we're starting to do this. And then we think further. What is happening as our ocean temperatures are changing? This last summer, we were trying to do a study that we've done every summer where we can spike things and do all of our biology and control everything. Suddenly, we couldn't. Everything was changing so fast because the oceans were so warm, the microbes had changed on us. And so now, the chemistry of what's coming out is changing. The biology of what's coming out is changing. How is that going to affect our clouds and our health 
and not just our health, our ecosystem health, right? Our agricultural health. And this stuff is going everywhere. And these microbes are changing. They're moving around. Those circulation patterns that we've had going in the same direction for a super long time, they're changing. The everything's changing. And so what is this going to do to our atmosphere in our, basically our health? And so the last thing I'll just touch on is this is a really neat example, I think. It's the only example. It's the best example I can think of that has to do with can we think about linking air transport patterns, air circulation patterns with disease? And so it turns out that at, at UC San Diego, we have what's called the Kawasaki Disease Research Center. This is the most common cause of acquired heart disease in children. And basically, it's a, a disease where when the wind, this is wind direction versus number of incidents of Kawasaki disease. And when the wind lines up between Japan, Japan San Diego, and Hawaii, this is Jane Burns, she can look at the wind and the wind patterns and decide whether she needs to go to her office to see patients or not. I mean, that's a pretty strong connection. And what's amazing about this, I met her after I was doing all this work on the microbes coming in from Africa. Turns out the conditions are the same. So it turns out that this year, you've noticed there's been a lot of intense rain events. They're called atmospheric rivers. That's what we study. We've been studying those in Northern California. They came down. So now we've got atmospheric rivers in San Diego, and we have this huge epidemic of Kawasaki disease in San Diego. And so now the question is, can we start to collect these microbes in clouds? Can we link them with the scrapings either in the throat, which is where you see all the evidence, or under the fingernails? Can we start to make these connections? We think there will be connections, and we're just now getting the data. So the interesting thing is, you know, basically there's a huge, as I say, this huge epidemic. So I'm scratching my head, literally, sitting in my office thinking, how do, I feel like it's just the circulation patterns. I feel the planet is changing. The weather's telling us it's changing. So the biology's probably changing in the air, but we haven't been sampling the air. So what do we do? So then I thought, the rain. We could look at the rain. If we could look at rain, look back in time at rain, we could actually see if there's some new biology coming into the air that's leading to this huge epidemic. So this is where citizen science, I get a phone call from a citizen, I don't know if she's here, but she, was, she, was, she, she called me up, she says, I live in Mission Viejo and I've been collecting precipitation, I'm not, this is a true story, I've been collecting precipitation samples back to 2004 and I've got co family coming and I need to dump, I'm gonna dump them unless you want them. Because I know you've studied precipitation in the past. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know? And she's like, because I, you know, I just, I just did it because I kind of like rain. And I was like, oh, okay. So basically, these are her samples. This is her delivering them. She wanted to meet me if she, before she relinquished her precious samples. And so she collected them in Mission Viejo, so Southern California. And these go all the way back. And so now we can look at what are the spores. We can do DNA, RNA analysis. Are they fungal? We kind of think there's a fungal link to this. Do we see a shift? Are, they just, are there new ones arriving this year? That's a big question. And we now have the ability to look at this. And then we can compare these to the patients, because there are a lot of patients and a lot of um, samples from um, mostly from throat, throat swabs and fingernail swabs. So this is kind of a cool example of citizen science. Of somebody, I, I love it because people are paying attention now and thinking about, you know, what's going on in our planet. And so these are precious samples. And so with that, I'd like to sort of conclude by saying, you know, we're experiencing an amazingly fast transition to our planet. 
I, microbes are trying to tell us something. They're kind of like having embedded environmental sensors everywhere. They're changing things. They're changing not only the health of our bodies, but the health of our planets. And I always tell people, we take care of the microbes, they'll take care of us. That's a true statement. It's a two-way street. You know, as wildfires are coming, we're, you know, we're just sort of changing the whole system. And so we need to think about these feedbacks. Our goal, our big idea, is to think about how to develop a map of where the microbes are and where they're coming from, where they're going. You know, do they come from the ocean? Do they come from land? How do these affect humans and ecosystems in terms of health? And so can we think about, if we see these microbes coming across and we know they're coming, can we think about telling the public, don't go out today. This is a bad day to be out breathing the air. You know, can we think about putting these, the data we got from Africa, we can see that dust and microbes marching across the ocean. They're already putting that into weather forecast models to improve the predictions of, of where water is going to fall and how much it's going to fall. So this is a really exciting time. Um, it's a really interesting, I think, it's exciting for us to sort of be at the heart of, of this, this problem and thinking about this sort of human, natural interaction tug of war we have going. And that brings me to sort of the last thing that we're just building at Scripps, which will come on board in 2020. It's a huge as opposed to just that channel, it's going to have winds and waves up to 15 meters per second, so we can start to induce many more sort of situations. And we're going to put a smog chamber on top, so we can add the human component, and we can start to unravel this concept of humans versus microbes. And so the concept being, you know, we can think about pumping the CO2 levels up to ridiculously high levels, think, seeing how the acidity of the ocean changes the microbes that come out, and start to think of this whole, now we've got to go back. Because the hardest problem really in climate, of thinking where we're going, we didn't really have, a, we don't have a baseline of what this planet was like before humans. We may, but we won't be here to do the studies, right? So, you know, it, what we're trying our best to do is to sort of understand the natural system and then add the human system and start to untangle those different effects. And so I often, I finish all my public all my talks actually, um, with, you know, how can we all make a difference? You know, one way I do it is by giving public lectures like this, talk about it. I spent the time today, to, to, tonight, to try and explain, you know, sort of explain some of the basics. If I didn't, I'm always happy to answer questions. You're welcome to come visit. You know, Bill Nye says, you know, it's true, talk about it. People do not talk about it. As messy and crazy as it is, there's all these surveys that are out there that show people are still not talking about it. Like 10% of the U.S. actually ever has a conversation about this. And so I think if every one of you goes and tells, you know, however many people and that spreads, you know, it's just, there's a lot of confusion. And I, we, we're all doing the best we can to make a difference. And, you know, we each can make a difference. So educating people about what's really happening, it's not, you know, a belief system, it's reality. Little things every day. If we, all, we don't have to wait for the government to tell us what to do and order us what to do. We all make choices every day. If we take those choices seriously and we each make a change a day or at a time, I, we make, in our family, we make one big change every year, electric car one year, solar another year. We, we um, zero-scaped our front yard another year. We try to make one thing, big thing. Uh, but, you know, if we all kind of thought like that, that we all play a role in the system, I think we really can make a difference. The other thing that I do, we do, in the center, and I'll just mention if people are ever interested, we do a lot of education and outreach at different festivals around uh, the area, seeing these faces, getting kids excited about science again. Oh, they get excited about this stuff. And so getting kids, people hooked on science early to get them groomed, to grow into people that can help on these really hard problems, to not be afraid. We're training the grad students and the postdocs as fast as we can. 
we're making as, you know, them entrepreneurs, science communicators, innovators. Mostly we're making them fearless of this hard, hard problem. We want training across all areas, not just chemistry, not just biology. We need a concerted effort, and people need to be ready to tackle these really, trained to tackle these really, really hard problems. And so, you know, it's a very, this is a huge part of what we do is building the pipeline. And with that, I thank you for your attention, and I'm happy to answer any questions.